Uh, Today's scripture is from Luke 4, uh, 14 to 30. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't that Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All of the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Thanks, Laura. Uh, If I haven't met you yet, my name is Graham. I'm on staff here uh, doing youth and spiritual formation and all sorts of other things. And it's great to stand in front of you this morning. Uh, I don't know about you. But I don't think I've ever had a relationship with somebody that I wanted uh, to throw them off the cliff. Maybe you have. Uh, I don't, I don't, I was trying to think, like, I don't think there's ever been someone that I was this upset at and this incensed by that I wanted to throw them uh, off a cliff. Uh, This is uh, the cliff they actually think they brought him to to try to check him off of just outside of Nazareth. There's a lovely view as you tumble to your doom. Uh, and this is a question that I want us to, to think about this morning is what was he saying that got them to this point where they were so frustrated that this was their response? Because when I read this on an initial basis, I'm like, that doesn't seem that ridiculous to me that that would prompt such, a, such an act of violence. So let's sit with that question a little bit uh, as we look through this, this work of Jesus. And, and right now we're in the season of Lent. And so we're uh, kind of looking at the start of Jesus' ministry. And how some of these key moments at the beginning um, really were foreshadowing what was going to happen in a few weeks. So there's this delicate dance we're doing of, of looking at what's going to happen without trying to spoil it. So I'm going to try to walk that this week as we kind of walk closer to uh, Easter Sunday together as a church. So he starts by proclaiming something uh, pretty incredible. And it's odd that he would, they would want to throw him off the cliff because it seems to be something they would want to hear, that they wanted to hear for a while. He's teaching in the synagogues, their equivalent of churches. And uh, it's a format like ours. I think we, we have really, the, old, uh, the New Testament tells us a bit about the format of how these worked, um, where somebody, like this morning, comes up and reads, and then somebody kind of expounds and teaches on what was talked about uh, and, and kind of gives an explanation for the scripture that was read, uh, kind of like what I'm doing right now. 
And so he reads from Isaiah, um, which is impressive in, uh, just as an aside, because this book had no, the scroll that we see um, has no chapters or verses. So he was really unrolling this thing, and he knew the spot that he wanted to find, and he was able to, to do it. As an aside, really impressive knowledge of Scripture on the part of Jesus. So he reads the scroll, and he sits down, and he gives um, possibly the shortest sermon that has ever been given. He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Nine-word sermon. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And I imagine that his audience had mixed reactions to that, the way we would have mixed reactions to that if I got up here and I was already done because I'd given nine words. Some of us would be like, oh, are you kidding me? What are we paying this guy for? Nine words? That's all I get? Get back up there. I want at least 40 minutes. It's bad enough they only give him 20. Others of us would be... Others of us would be, oh, thank goodness, finally, somebody gets it. That's all we need, nine words. You don't have to say anything more. And there's probably the third camp in the synagogue, too, that's like, I don't care as long as my kids stay in childcare until 1230. He can do whatever he wants. We're fine. As long as that thing doesn't change, we're content. <laughs> um, I mean, we could, we could unpack these nine words, I think, for a long time, maybe 40 minutes. But I'd like to focus um, on the actual passage that he read in Isaiah. And the way that he interacts with the text, what he chooses to bring out from Isaiah. Um, and uh, there's a couple things to note here, right? As we've kind of explored this morning in our Lenten reflection time, this is a rich and pointed expression of Jesus' ministry. In Luke, these are the first public kind of works or words of ministry that Jesus declared to people. He's had this interaction um, with the temptation that um, Brandon talked about last week. But this is really him getting his show underway as far as this is what I'm here to do uh, in my public ministry. Um, and in Luke, this is good news, right? This is good news to the poor. This is gospel to the poor. As captives released, prisoners freed. This is the time of the Lord's favor. And this is good news for us too. If you don't take anything else away from my more than nine word sermon this morning, I really hope that you can sit with this passage at some point this week and think about the ways that, I don't know the situation in this. I don't know what you're going through. Um, and I don't know where you've been, but I know that there is good news in here if we sit with this Isaiah passage. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And each of these we can look at in two different ways, right? We can think about this kind of as a metaphor, right, for maybe a release from some sort of addiction or something we're going through. Um, we're saying, open the eyes of my heart, like the blind will see, that there's blindness within me that God can open me up to, to see a new way of, of seeing this deeper reality that we're a part of. The oppressed will go free. What is oppressing you right now, and can we claim this as a promise in our own lives? And then there's that other physical reality, that there are people in prison, there are poor amongst us, at the end, he says, the Lord's favor has come. He, Jesus is referring to this idea of the year of Jubilee, which was this kind of law that God put in place in the Old Testament that nobody ever really followed, where um, every 50 years they would reassign their land, not um, just give it to new people, but kind of go back to where it was. It was like their ability to accrue wealth was just kind of like um, axed every 50 years and they had to start over. Like I just, I'm trying to imagine what our economy would look like if we did that. Every 50 years, it was just a bit of a reset. Um, the damage it would do, really to our current system. And, and what's interesting about this passage that um, I want to draw our attention to is that Jesus plays with the wording of the scripture and the way we have, um, have it read. So I'm going to read from Isaiah. 
And then I'm going to read from Luke. And we'll see if we can spot the difference together. And I've made it very easy for you because I've bolded. So Jesus is reading from Isaiah 62. He reads verse 1 and 2 almost. Almost reads the whole thing. So Isaiah 62, verse 1 to 2, says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. For the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted, to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And with it, the day of God's anger against their enemies. That's the full verse 1 and 2. We go over to Luke. And Jesus unrolls the scroll and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, the blind will be set free, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And then he stops. This stanza in, in Isaiah isn't over, but Jesus omits this end phrase, this time of judgment on their enemies. And I wonder if this is why they tried to kill him, right? I think we I mean, some, certainly people who speak at the front sometimes, we can get a bad rep for, like, just ignoring the parts that make us uncomfortable and just preaching on the good stuff. And, and kind of it feels like Jesus is doing that a little bit this, this morning. He, he reads Isaiah, but then he kind of stops before he gets to the day of God's anger against their enemies. Why was he doing this? Was this way that he was interpreting their Hebrew scriptures the reason they threw him off a cliff? No. I don't think it is because the story continues and it tells us that they all marveled at him. This is exciting. Hearing this passage read and then his nine-word sermon that this is actually fulfilled today is something that they were very excited about initially. Jesus is coming to fulfill all of this work in their midst. Jesus is going to come and fulfill all of this for them. And they might know that next little bit of a verse that he omitted, right, about judgment on our enemies. And they're getting excited, right? We see this in a few weeks from now when he's in Jerusalem and they're parading him through the town. They are excited that a Messiah has come to fulfill this work of conquering enemies. Now, we have to remember that Jesus is in his own hometown, which is an interesting uh, dynamic that all of us, I think, can relate to. I, I didn't grow up here in KW. I grew up in Guelph, so not too far away, but still like a very convenient distance uh, a way that most of you don't uh, know me from when I looked like this. Aww. If nothing else, this picture proves that my eyes have always just kind of been half open. It's not like a new thing and it's okay to talk about. It's, uh, it's pretty adorable as a kid and kind of weird now. <laughs> right? But there is a whole church community in Guelph that I grew up in that has access to memories of me when I was this age, when I was doing things that were really annoying, more annoying than I do now. Um, they were there for my blunder years. Have you heard of this phrase? The blunder years. You can go back. I mean, go to your Facebook. I think they're still setting to do this. I'm not on Facebook for this very reason. But you can, instead of going um, and creeping somebody's photos, like from the most recent one back, just hit the left button and start at the beginning of whatever Facebook has of their memory. And uh, you might have heard of this whole 10-year challenge, right? 10 years. What, have you, what do you look like today versus 10 years ago? So here's my 10-year challenge on the next slide. Oh, sorry, go back. <laughs> I, I messed up. I was going to have a blank slide and be like, ha, huh, I'm not going to do that to you because I don't want to. I love that none of you had to see me when I was a kid. I like that I didn't grow up in your midst, and this is really convenient to me. Rachel's bad enough having her here to call me out on things that I try to present that aren't really that great. If all of you knew me as a baby, how awful would that be? This is great being one town over from my home synagogue. Um, 
And the next uh, slide is a quote that I found compelling. This is a, a brilliant writer, Hanif Abdurak. Uh, Ab well, he's got a great name. Uh, really, no, and uh, he's written an incredible book of just reflections, and a lot of it is kind of tying his experience of life in America into the music that he loved as a kid. And he talks about growing up in um, Columbus, Ohio, and the band 21 Pilots taking off to the point that a lot of us know the name of a band called 21 Pilots. And he, he says this line, he says, I'm proud of them because I've watched them from their early days, and I'm hard on them because I watched them from their early days. And that's often the sentiment we get with hometown heroes, right? Um, I have enough friends who grew up playing soccer with uh, a certain pop star named Justin Bieber. And so whenever he's having success in the world, a part of me in the back of my mind is like, yeah, but I know that he like cried when he didn't get the goal. Like, cause my friends have told like, there's, there's, can we escape our hometowns? Um, and can we escape these people? And, and often I think truthfully we're hardest on the people and proudest of the people that we grew up with. And that's all playing into this dynamic that Jesus has in the temple at this point. He's Joseph's son. That's what the story tells us. And I don't know what expression they used when they said it, right? This is a boy whose mom was pregnant before his parents got married. And we find the virgin birth a little unbelievable at times. I'm sure they did too, Joseph's son. And maybe it's a nickname, a joke that he's been called his whole life, right? People don't maybe believe that about him. Are they excited that this is being fulfilled by him? Who does he think he is? There's a lot of rumors and maybe accusations going on. But the story tells us they like what he's saying because they believe it to be all about them, right? This good news, this um, freedom from oppression, these chains being loosed Jubilee is about their community, right? Of course it is. Scarcity mindset sets in when we experience these kinds of blessings. Jesus is one of ours, and therefore he's going to do this for us. Our redemption, this good news is going to bring judgment and punishment on other people. We often get into this us or them mentality that this blessing is kind of a fixed pie. There's only so much of it to go around. And if I have less, if you have more, that means that I have less. Um, we can't all win sports tournaments. We can't all get that exact same job, right? Scarcity is a little bit built into just the way we live our lives um, for different good reasons. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I think sometimes we can use it inappropriately. Um, it seems impossible to them that we could all have the Lord's favor. And I think this gets us to this challenge in this chapter and ultimately the frustration that this community feels and I think that we'll feel too is that this expansive good news, this um, prophet, um, this wording from Isaiah that he's talking about is good news to everyone. And that is offensive. Jesus becomes aware of their excitement and assumptions about how this good work will play out and he starts um, to kind of quell their hopes, right? He's already kind of um, missed the end of this verse about judging enemies, and so he starts to back it up with some passages from their scriptures showing how God has actually been doing this for a long time. This isn't some new idea, but we've actually got a few examples in our scripture of how God is working. He brings up Elijah going to a widow during a time of famine, a widow who is not part of the community, who is part of the outside community. He points to Elijah's apprentice, Padawan, if you will, Elisha, who um, is um, greeted by a, a man named Naaman, Naaman, I don't know how we say it, I don't know how we would know how we say it. So we all just uh, have different ways that I guess we grew up saying it. Uh, Naaman, uh, Naaman, he is a Syrian commander. Uh, he is leader of the army, and he has leprosy, and he comes to Israel. He has, the story in Second in Kings tells us that he had been given blessing by God to actually defeat the Israelites in the past, which plays with this whole psyche of God is our God and only our God. Um, 
and he's healed. And after he's healed in the story, he totally admits openly to Elisha. You can go back and read it in, in uh, 2 Kings 5. That he's not going to, he knows Yahweh is real. He knows this God who has healed him is the God. But he's got to, to save face publicly, he's still going to worship his other God. Knowing in his heart that Yahweh is the real God. So this is, this is not some story of like, oh, we got somebody from the opposite team. And they've converted to our side and they're going to go infiltrate this other Syrian community, our enemies, the people who have imprisoned us, who have probably blinded some of our soldiers, who probably have some of our relatives in prison after these battles. He's still going to publicly say he's on the other team, and we're okay with that. This is a frustrating story to people who had war as a real part of their reality, a real lived experience. So unfortunately for the people of Jesus' hometown in Nazareth and his home team here in KW... This good news includes these conquerors. This jubilee, this release from oppression and the favor of the Lord that Jesus starts his ministry with is not a fixed pie, but it's much bigger. It encompasses Israel's enemies, and it encompasses ours too. And so what is our response to this unfair grace, this good news that Jesus proclaims that makes them terribly upset? It's a foreshadowing, right, of Easter. This is kind of seeing how all of this is leading to this moment that we're going to explore in a few weeks. This world changing, it's, he's destroying the scales of how we measure value between each other and how we measure value with God. And if, in a few weeks, we're going to explore that in depth, how Jesus claims that this prophecy of Isaiah is really true and how he fills that out. But for now, in Lent, we have to sit with the fact that this message and mission is not just for those of us who gather in buildings on Sunday mornings. God is as interested and excited to know me as he is to know the aggressive man asking me for change outside of the LCBO while smoking his second cigarette. Jesus probably would have been on Ezra Street about a week ago. I believe God was there. And I don't know if he would have been like destroying property, um, but I think he was there. God is as interested in redeeming me and knowing me as he is in knowing and redeeming Donald Trump or the leader that you are struggling to understand and have any empathy for right now. This good news is for all. Even if it doesn't seem in the moment like good news for me. And this missional claim of Jesus, this audacious claim, this work um, is either engaged with or it's stopped. That's, I think, what we see in this story. One commentator on this passage Timothy Geddert wrote, Jesus really does provoke strong reactions when his claims are truly heard. Radical obedience for those who say yes and radical rejection for those who say no. The third option, taming Jesus into an innocuous teacher, innocuous I looked up means not harmful or not offensive, a not offensive teacher who explains how we all get into heaven when we die, did not occur to people back then. This is a much later heresy. Back then, they got right down to the only two plausible options. Try to rid the world of a dangerous troublemaker and false prophet, or else fall down before him, call him Lord, and begin living as Jesus did. If we take this seriously, then ways of thinking and being in the world of scarcity that we have have to change. We have to begin walking to Jerusalem with Jesus. They tried to throw him off a cliff, and my question today, I guess for our community, is what is our response when we hear of this? This grace is offensive because it includes my enemies, foreign military powers, and people outside of my group. All of them. 
Well, the people of Nazareth and his hometown were missing that we can miss too. I, I think we so quickly read ourselves into the story like we're on Jesus' side, right? Like, oh, I'm reading my Bible. I'm like, oh, those Pharisees. If only they, they knew what I knew. Oh, silly them. I would challenge you in your Bible reading this week to, to try to read it as if you're the person he's challenging. Like, let, I think I just always assume I'm on Jesus' team because I'm a Christian and I, I'm with him. Let's try to read it as if maybe we're, we're not or we're these people who— um, have been in this building with him for a long time and, and are maybe just m- missing it a little bit. This procl- proclamation that he makes isn't just for us. This blessing is our invitation. We are blessed by it, but we're also invited into it for our communities in KW and beyond. It's ours to enact. It's ours to participate in. This is his work going forward and the exciting thing we get to do when we do call him Lord. Lord. Rather than limiting Jesus to this nice guy we grew up with who helps us out, who's on our team, the claim of this passage is that if this is true, then we can't stay sitting, listening in the synagogue. As uncomfortable as it is, we need to recognize this good news for all and follow him as he continues on his way, or we cast him off. This is his goal, right? This is his first public declaration. It's his work. It's his ministry. And it's only going to become a greater reality when this local preacher gets to the big city of Jerusalem and this bigger crowd gets excited about what they think he's going to do and realize it's really different than they were expecting. And so the story ends with them at a cliff. And that's where we are too. What decisions do we have to make about how we're going to engage with this mission and this work and this call of Isaiah that Jesus claims as his own, that we claim as our own? I like how the story ends because from a literary perspective, I think it's a really great setup, right? They, they drag him out to this cliff. They, they bring him outside of town to a brow, they say, outside of a community. Um, and they're going to kill him and cast him down, and he simply walks right through them, right? This is like character-establishing uh, works, right? Oh, this is great. As a reader, I now know that if Jesus is ever in a situation again where they drag him out of town and they're ready to kill him, good thing to know he's got the superpower of walking through crowds and escaping death. That's the spiritual gift that I would like. Um, But we've got one example in Luke of how he deals with people trying to destroy him. I would assume as a reader that this will just be a character trait that he continues to live out, but I guess we'll just have to see. The story ends that he passed through them and he continued on his way. And may we continue striving to live out this Jesus way this week. In our homes, in our neighborhoods, and places of life. Remembering that this is absolutely a blessing for us. It's a hope for you, but it's also so much more. It's an invitation. Why don't I pray for us, and then uh, we can head over and discuss. Yeah, God, we just come before you this morning, and... uh, I ask that we would all sit with these, these words, this challenge of Jesus, and, and start to take it seriously, God, that in this season of Lent, um, as we're working towards this uh, most important moment in human history, that we would take stock of where we sit in all this and be willing to take steps with you into what you're inviting us, whatever that looks like for us right now, whether that is being loosed from oppression, God, I ask that you'd be in our community this week. If there are ways that you want to break us free, And if there are ways that you want to invite us into the work of bringing this into our homes and communities and neighborhoods, then I ask that you'd be with us in that too. 
And I thank you for this group of people, this local group that we can get to know one another well and walk with one another through our blunder years. And all God's children said, amen.